Today we're talking with Steven Pavlovich, CEO of Conversion.com, and I'll be asking him how you can and why you should be using experimentation to manage risk and how you can create a risk profile for your own or your client's business. My name is Guido Janssen and welcome to the Zero Cafe, the podcast where I show you the behind the scenes of optimization teams and talk with their specialists about data and human-driven optimization and implementing a culture of experimentation and validation. In case you missed it, in the previous English episode, we spoke about server-side testing with Ruben de Boer and Tom van den Berg from Online Dialogue. And you can listen to that episode on the Zero Cafe website or in the podcast app you're listening with right now. This episode of Zero Cafe is made possible by our partners Online Dialogue, Sidespec, Online Influence Institute, Content Square, and Convert.com. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 37. Stephen, welcome back to the Zero Cafe. And before we dive into our main topic, I wanted to ask you about something you said at the Digital Elite Conference in April last year. And you expressed the hope that people in Zero in 2019 we'll start answering bigger questions. So instead of just optimizing landing pages or just forms or dare I say button colors, we should all focus more on the actual product offering, uh, pricing schemes or the markets that companies address. Um, how far do you think we are in this? I would say for the most part, we're pretty um, pretty early on in, in that journey. I think there's a, there's a long way for, for us to go to, um, in terms of what we can do. To, to test that yeah it, it feels like at the moment most people are kind of testing typically testing changes that they would make anyway in other words if a b testing didn't exist would you still make this change and for most people they probably would so they're kind of testing something that they consider to be best practice or a kind of logical idea and so in doing that it doesn't really kind of stray too far from what they would do anyway and i think that undervalues the role that experimentation can play feels more like a like a safeguard. Like okay, I, I, I want to do this, but I don't want to feel too big. So let's let's check this before we put it live. Yeah, I mean, or sometimes it's not. It's a safeguard implies that you could potentially fail. Like sometimes I feel like the reason why people run A/B tests is to see how clever they are. Like um, you know, I've got this idea. Let's let's test it, and then I can use that to show how, how much of a good idea. It was to do it. I think a lot of the time people aren't testing concepts that are bold enough to to fail in a big way. And obviously you shouldn't be looking to fail in a big way, but you should be testing ideas that have the potential to go um, at opposite ends of the spectrum as opposed to just kind of oscillating around um, around the middle. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 think it's, I think it's still a very fair point that a lot of people are kind of testing fairly simple... Uh, concepts that are kind of, I guess, what they might expect to see on a competitor's website. Um, whereas experimentation should give us the power to test pretty much anything. It's like we have a, a whole kind of alternate reality that we, where we get to play God, we get to kind of create that new experience and decide what it should be and then see whether it performs better or not. But then people still kind of keeping it so close to, to what they have already. And why do you think that is? Uh, is it is it like the, the, the corporate culture? Is Are, are we not uh, exploring enough? Are we not, don't we dare enough uh, to do ex- exceptional things or the, the extreme things? Or Yeah, I, I, I certainly think that the culture is, is part of it, but I think also the um, 
the culture point can only be used as an excuse so far. I think it goes both ways. And the culture is by its nature, the, the people and, and how they act. And so it's on us as experimenters, I guess, to to, to help inform and, and change that culture. So yes, certainly the culture is part of it. And a lot of the time when people within a company want to run a bold experiment, they get pushed back and people don't want to do it. And that's that's totally fair enough. But there's still ways around that. I think a big part of it is also that we don't always, and this applies just as much to, to myself as, as anyone else, we don't always have the imagination or inspiration to put forward those bolder concepts. When you're looking to, to optimize a, a website, the temptation is, right, let's look at what it looks like today and come up with some ideas for, for what we can test. And you tend to keep it fairly close to what is already there. You don't tend to come up with the bold and more creative ideas, you know, the throw it out and start again concepts if you do that yeah so i think it's certainly culture is part of it but it's also on, on us as cro professionals to um to, to push to push that forward and, and try and change it you know, and i want to hear more from you uh, later on in this episode about uh, how, how to come up with more disruptive ideas sure and this is a nice segue into the the blog post you created about using experimentation to manage risk or create a, a hmm. risk profile i think this, that's uh, an important part in in well, becoming more disruptive, you need to know, be aware of the risk you're yes um, uh, you're having. Um, so, first off, what is a risk profile? Let's start with that one. Sure. So, I think everybody has a risk profile in their experimentation strategy, whether they know it or actively manage it or not. By its nature, some experiments that you do will be low risk. They will be iterations of something that you have tested before and you saw work. Um, and others will be uh, medium risk. That might be where you're testing a completely new concept, but it's unlikely to have an effect outside of the experiment itself. In other words, when you stop the experiment, that's when you limit the impact. And then there could be high-risk experiments. So these are ones where it's potentially more likely to have an effect even after you've stopped the experiment. So if you're testing pricing, if you're a relatively high profile company and you're testing something that people might pick up on on social media or in the press for example then those are likely to be higher risk experiments so most companies will be doing a mix of these experiments already mostly low and medium risk experiments typically um, my my belief is that companies should be managing a fairly balanced portfolio, including some high-risk experiments, because ultimately those are the ones that your competitors are less likely to run. Those are the ones that will give you the competitive advantage. Those are the ones that will help you go from the the, the local uh, maxima to the global maxima. In other words, rather than helping you to optimize and iterate on what you already have, it can show you where there's and a much greater potential elsewhere. And you'll only get that by testing those more radical concepts. Yeah, you, you already mentioned uh, those competitors, but uh, not running an experiment is also a risk, right? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's that's entirely fair. And it's, it's something that often people will, will overlook. Um, not running an experiment can mean either changing a website without, without testing it, which is obviously a quite a significant risk, yeah. or not changing a website and leaving it as it is because you're too afraid to touch it, which again is a significant risk because um, hopefully your competitors would be testing and optimizing and continuing to to evolve. And in doing so, they are gaining a significant advantage over you. So 
you can't do nothing. You can't change your website without test it. So you have to test in a logical and scalable way. Yeah, and, and to do so means getting the the balance right between those low, medium, and high risk tests. So I think I think many zero uh, practitioners already use a framework for prioritizing tests. Would you say that's very similar to a risk profile or do we need to add something to it? Or I must admit, I struggle with a lot of the prioritization methods out there. This is probably a whole other, this is a whole other podcast. Um, but for me, I think that the challenge with a lot of prioritization methods um, is that at their core, they have, it essentially comes down to a fairly subjective belief which is at some point you're going to be asked essentially what is the expected impact of this test. Yeah. The problem with that is it, it's it's very subjective. You know, your idea for potential impact might be different to to mine for the same experiment. It becomes very hard to do that in a consistent, logical way. And as that is one of the main driving factors behind how you prioritize your experiments, it then um, starts to call into question the whole value of that prioritization method. Um, the approach that we use is, is a little bit different. We try to make it as data-driven as, as possible, um, with the data being the evidence that you've gained either from previous experiments or from customer research and using that to inform the prioritization. Um, so we, we talk about this quite a bit on our blog um, where we talk about the score um, prioritization method. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, I wouldn't have thought that risk is necessarily something that comes into most people's prioritization methods. Even the, the, the score methodology, when, when we wrote that blog post, I don't know that we necessarily, in fact, no, I don't think we did factor risk as a um, significant effect into, in, into that at the time either. So it's, it's certainly something that, that needs, to, needs to evolve. For over 10 years now, Online Dialog advises about evidence-based conversion optimization with a focus on data and psychology. We see that analyzing data and recognizing customer behavior results in a better online dialog with your clients and a higher ROI. The team of strategists, analysts, psychologists and UX specialists gathers valuable insights in the online behavior of your visitors and together with you, they optimize the different elements of your CRO program through redesign, expert reviews, A-B tests and behavioral analysis. For more information about their services, go to onlinedialogue.com. But is that, is that the moment uh, that you usually do the prioritization for your experiments? Is it also the moment you would evaluate the, those those risk factors? Or? Yeah, so it's it's normally when we're doing the ideation phase. So um, prioritization is, is typically something that should, it's, it's not a kind of one-off event. Um, in, in my belief, most people treat it as though you come up with a list of 20 experiments and then you want to prioritize them and decide in which order you should do it. In my opinion, that's probably far too late to be to be prioritizing. You should start much sooner sooner than that. Um, typically, you should be prioritizing at the um, area, audience, and lever level. In other words, you should um, prioritize the areas on your website so you know that testing on the product page is going to be higher priority than testing on the homepage, for example. Um, you should uh, prioritize based on the audiences too. So. Uh, we should be testing on prioritizing mobile visitors over desktop, for example. And then you can prioritize on the lever, um, lever being the, the kind of key hypothesis behind the experiment. So uh, it might be uh, 
trust or delivery or um, pricing, for example, these kind of core principles, yep. because then you can cluster your experiments around those. You can get an understanding of which work and which don't. So that way you can say, okay, we know that the highest priority is to test on the product page and on mobile traffic and the delivery lever has the highest win rate so far. So therefore we need to come up with the best next experiment to run on that um, on that page, on that audience, on that lever. And that way you've already done a lot of the prioritization work before you even start on the ideation process. Yeah. And all you have to do is come up with the best next experiment. You don't have to come up with a list of 20 different concepts and then try to prioritize those based on well, I think my idea is going to have a higher impact than yours and, and vice versa. <laughs> um, so it becomes much more objective as a result if, if you do that. And so so when you're running these more disruptive experiments, uh, I can imagine you get a lot of backlash from the company saying, okay, but if, if we do this, we need to overhaul uh, our whole department or uh, uh, the way we do marketing or, or yeah. the, the way we do business in general. Uh, how do you respond to that? How do you help them understand that, hey, this is actually important for you to yeah. do because otherwise in a year you might not have any customers? Or Yeah, totally. I mean, we, we always look to, it's, it's that same phrase that I mentioned a second ago, the, the best next experiment. So what we're trying to create is not the perfect solution for any given problem. We're trying to create the best next experiment. Yeah. Um, what I mean by that is we wouldn't say to a company, you have to do this and this means overhauling your entire department or structure or your value proposition we want to use experimentation to inform that and so it's kind of like the um you know taking the next step on the journey yeah because i, I see a lot of uh, people that are unfamiliar with experiments that if, if they if they um see those experiments up front and then they already assume okay but if this is proven somehow then we need to implement it and we need to overhaul everything to accommodate whatever the, yeah. the results from that experiment is but then that that's not necessarily a bad thing like if, if you run the experiment and it shows you should be doing x and this is how much better it will be for your customers and for your business then you have your ready-made yeah. business case there or, or at least it's food for thought and and uh exactly food for more experiments saying hey apparently we can do much better precisely let's explore this more and if, if you decide not to do it then you know the the potential impact yeah. of that absolutely exactly one thing that we we will always do is in terms of kind of taking those baby steps is we'll look to start with something i guess there, there are two ways of doing it you can either start with a, a big goal and scale it down to a very simple concept that you can test next Or you can start with something fairly simple and then you test that. And if it works, you test something else. And again, and again, and again, until you you scale it over time in terms of the potential impact that it has. Um, so for one one of our clients, they were a, um, uh, a medical client and we knew that every time we tested um, delivery as a lever, it was successful. So if we added... Um, uh, If we promoted free delivery in the navigation, for example, that was successful. If we reminded people about that when they were on the product page and the checkout, that was successful as well. Uh, if we spoke about the speed of delivery, that was successful. And we knew that essentially every test that we did around delivery um, seemed to be successful. And it got to the point where we said to the client, delivery is obviously something that your customers really care about. How can we actually improve the commercial proposition because that could be a key advantage it's something that you know your customers care a lot about and so that's what prompted them to test 
same-day in-store delivery because they have hundreds of stores across the UK. And so we were able to test that in a fairly simple way before they'd rolled it out um, nationwide. We were just able to do that as a fairly simple proof of concept. And we could see that, yes, sure enough, same-day delivery was, was very popular for uh, for them. It was something that the customers appreciated. Yeah. And so we were able to use experimentation to inform something that would become a commercial proposition. And it wasn't like on day one we said to them, you need to test same-day in-store delivery because they wouldn't have bought it. But because we had, I think it was about six months worth of A-B test data to to inform it, yeah. it gave them the confidence to to test it out. Yeah, and those might not work out financially in, in the short run either, right? I mean, setting up yeah. those delivery networks and that's that can be uh, a lot of time and money that you need yeah. to invest in it. But once it scales, it starts to make money. Yeah, exactly so. So um, how do you uh, go about determining uh, what's uh, what's a low versus high risk experiment? How do you what, what's your process to to get more of those high risk ones in? So there are a couple of different ways that we can do it. In the um, in the blog post, I spoke about a, a fairly kind of simple scoring matrix that you can use. It it's one that works for us, and it asks you questions like essentially, um, what type of experiment are you are you running? Is it on are you changing UI or text? changing functionality or pricing um, each of those is, is likely to be a, to have a, dis, a different type of risk associated to it um, you can also look at um, the potential impact of the experiment even after you've stopped it so if um, I don't know, suppose we were working with um, I don't know one of the big um, fast food restaurants in the UK and they wanted to test a completely new um, vegan range of products, for example. And they wanted to do that as a painted door yeah. experiment. So they didn't actually have the, the products. They just wanted to add it to their website and see would people try and buy this. That is obviously a super high risk experiment. The likelihood is that you probably wouldn't want to run that in the first place because um, as soon as people started seeing that word would get out. People might talk about it on social media. They'd get annoyed if they couldn't buy it. Um, it might get leaked to the press and so on. So that's an example of a test that has an impact even after the test is finished. Yeah. That's obviously a pretty extreme example to, to illustrate the point. But there are plenty of tests like that that we've run at conversion where the client is taking a risk beyond the cost of actually building and running the experiment. It could have a, a, an impact beyond that. So we've got a kind of a, a fairly detailed model that allows you to, to estimate whether something is, is low, medium, or high risk. But a kind of very simple rule of thumb is essentially to ask yourself the question, if we couldn't A-B test this change, would we still roll it out? Because most of the time, people are testing things that they think are good ideas. Um, and that kind of sounds counterintuitive, like why would you not test something that is a good idea or why would you test something that you think is a bad idea but what i mean more is that essentially we only test the things that we think are going to work we should be testing the ideas where either it will crash and burn and it will tank the conversion rate or it will have the completely opposite effect so for for one of our clients one of my favorite examples is when we changed um we worked with a client, a SaaS client, to change their pricing model from one where people paid based on 
uh, the, the tiers are structured on functionality and we changed it to a pricing model um, based on usage. And if we didn't have A-B testing, would we still make that change? Well, it's hard to say, Pro- probably not because what they had already was working, but we wanted to see if this was better. Yeah. But it would be quite a big risk. It was quite a significant shift. Um, when we did test it, it actually ended up doubling sales, doubling revenue from from new customers. So it was hugely successful, but we might not have tested, um, but we might not have made that change if we couldn't have A-B tested it. Marketing budgets have suffered and the share for A-B testing has been impacted too. If you want to keep testing to enterprise standards, but save 80% on your annual contract, you can consider Convert.com. With their summer release, you can take advantage of full stack and hybrid features, strong privacy compliance, no blink, and enterprise-grade security. Feel good about your smart business decision. Invest what you save back in your zero program. Check out www.convert.com slash 2020. So do you for for those uh, higher risks? So I can imagine that, uh, yeah, if you do that publicly on a, on a public website where maybe millions of people already shop, uh, that can be high risk, maybe even when you when you release it in small percentages. Yeah. So do you move those high risk experiments away from A-B testing to other validation methods or maybe use those first? I mean, ideally we try and find a way to A-B test it because, um, I mean, we, we like the... I mean, for something like Pyramid that um, Tan and the guys at Online Dialogue um, introduced me to, and it it, it shows essentially that um, RCTs or A-B tests are the, the strongest form of evidence you can get, yep. especially when you do that, the meta-analysis of, of that from, from multiple A-B tests. Um, so we would always look to try and find a way to, to inform that. But it might be that we essentially have to break it down into... Um, a simpler concept that's easy to to A/B test. So, like the um, like the medical client with the same day delivery, for example, mm-hmm. that might be something that would be too hard for them to do on day one. But we can take steps towards it. And the same as with the yeah. um, if we were working with a, a, a fast food restaurant, they wanted to see you know, what would happen if we introduced this vegan range. We might say, well, rather than testing it on an entire range, let's try and um, it, it might make sense to test it on an individual product or even just to see essentially whether we could better signpost um, uh, existing products that are vegan, for example, and see what effect does that have on, on customer behavior. It's it's hard because there's only so much that you can do towards it compared to the benefit of you know, the kind of PR campaign that might go around with actually launching a whole new product range and so on. So it becomes harder to test at that sort of scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the challenge. So we just defined uh, a low risk, medium risk, and, and and high risk profile for for experiments. What do you think is a good balance? Is is there one way of doing this, or does it totally depend on the situation or the company? Or yeah, I think I think it I think it depends both on the company and on the the, the situation as well. I think I think a a company should not have the same risk profile all year round. For example, in other yeah. words, if you are a um, a retailer and you make fifty percent of your revenue in November, December, and January, for example, then you might think, well, we need to have a different risk profile for that period than the rest of the year. Yeah. It might be that when when you're in peak sales, you want to run no high risk experiments at all because you can't afford to crash the the conversion rate. And you should be focusing primarily on low-risk experiments. So these are ones that iterate on previous winning concepts, for example. 
Um, so those are the ones that you focus on doing that um, during peak period. Um, yes, always a fun discussion, of course, because like you said, you are making 50% of your revenue. Yeah. And it might be that, so that's a really important uh, segment of your users that are might, that might not shop the rest of the year, but are shopping on that, that part of the year. Exactly. Yes. So you do want to optimize. If you want to optimize for something, you should be optimizing for the, for the high peak 100%. part of, uh, of the year. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, we would probably suggest in, in that instance to skew more towards low and medium risk yeah. and probably not to run the high risk experiments. Yeah. yeah it depends on each company's appetite i mean we yeah. we know firsthand the difference that um a higher conversion rate can can make yeah. if you have a higher conversion rate and it, it, that allows you to afford a higher cost per acquisition and you can spend more than your competitors to acquire traffic yeah maybe also how how fast your your audience and and your your industry is moving right if every year is completely different yeah you need to keep figuring out okay what's working this year yeah well if you're a very traditional business then might be a totally different story. Yeah, absolutely. So for those risk profiles, um, uh, seasonality, uh, the size of your business, how fast your audience moves. Am I forgetting something? Um, I would say also the experience that you have in your A-B testing program. Yeah. In other words, if you're just getting started, if you run only a handful of A-B tests before, then you want to probably have a much more balanced um, profile across low, medium, and high risk. If anything, you might want to skew slightly more towards high risk experiments because low risk, when you're iterating, that's typically when you're focusing on building on concepts that have already um, that have won in the past. Whereas if you're just getting started with A/B testing, you don't want to narrow down your focus too early on. You want to make sure that you are having a pretty broad approach to experimentation, that you're testing a wide variety of um, of levers. And you test them in a, in a in a high impact way, so that you can learn quickly whether or not they they work for you and for your for your customers or not. Yeah, and I, I would also assume that there's a high correlation of the the the, the test effect size and the, the and the risk profile. So yeah. a higher risk might also be mean a higher reward usually. Uh, yeah. And and if you're just starting out with zero, um, well, if you're just starting out, my assumption would be you're probably a bit smaller exactly. company with less exactly. traffic. You're not necessarily used to that, so it. If, if you have more risk, high risk uh, experiments, yeah. there's a higher chance of you actually finding something. Totally, yeah. You have to take those bigger bets. And in your blog post, um, you mentioned uh, um, a couple of ideas to come up with those the disruptive ideas. I think that's that's a big challenge, of course, uh, with many teams. Yeah. So how how on earth do I find those disruptive ideas? Do I just sit down and brainstorm with my team? Or yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, absolutely, you can do. I mean, there are there are a lot of techniques that can that can work effectively. Um, in terms of brainstorming, like one that we use, that I didn't mention in the in the blog post. In terms of ways to come up with new ideas or more innovative ideas, as kind of higher risk concepts. One of my favourites is the idea of invalidating law. Law spelled L O R E. Yeah. Law is the kind of anecdotal knowledge that exists in your in your company, the things that you do because that's the way it's always been done. And um, I got this um, concept from an interview that uh, Chamath, who used to um, run the growth team at Facebook, um, started when he was talking about how Facebook's early success was based on this idea of invalidating law. In other words, find out what do you do in your company because that's the way it's always been, or what do you do in your industry even because that's the way it's always been, and then challenge that and test that assumption to see is that still valid, should that still be the case? Because often people 
by its nature, they accept that law. That's the way it's always been. They That goes unchallenged. And they don't necessarily realize that that could be holding you back. So, so how do you figure out what the law is? Do you go about interviewing people uh, and then asking them what their assumptions are about their customers or how, how things work in their business? Or? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we typically look to to challenge when we when we first start working with a client, we understand we want to go into the details of um, the of the product, how they sell it, how they make money from it, um, how it's structured. And then essentially we, we look to, um, I guess we want to kind of challenge it in an almost naive way. Um, in other words, we might say, well, why do you do it like this and not like this? And ask questions that are seemingly obvious, but in getting people to explain it, one, it helps to improve our understanding, but secondly, also it highlights some of those opportunities for um, that to, to, to show where people are, are doing something because that's the way it's always been done. So um, trying to figure out lore. So I think, uh, especially as, as an outsider coming in, that helps. I think you, you you notice things like, "Hey, that's that's weird," or "Why why on earth are yeah. they doing that?" And I think um, interviewing um, um, just new hires uh, and asking them, "Hey, what 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 stood out when you started working for this company?" Nice. Because as an, as an external agency, um, you're new, but you're still not necessarily working in the yeah. company. So you don't necessarily find out what the law is, but interviewing new new employees uh, can really help because they're they're doing this day in day out, but but still are well they're still new, yes. so they're not. But if you're working there for five years, you you have no idea what the law is. <laughs> Very true. Because it disappears. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I like it. Yesterday's brainstorm was so good. I really liked Steph's idea of running that test on the call to action buttons. Making them orange will really make them stand out, don't you think? Yeah, right. Do you want to design real A-B test winners and achieve enormous conversion uplift? Then stop brainstorming and take a scientific approach. If you can read Dutch, follow the steps in Online Influent, the bestseller on managementbook.nl. Or enroll in the author's course and become an expert in applying proven behavioral science yourself. Go to onlineinfluence.com for more information and free downloads. The second one was uh, divergent thinking. Yeah, so divergent thinking. This is um, a lot of people will be familiar with this idea already, even if even if they're not familiar with the uh, with the name of it. So divergent thinking is basically like um, if you've ever been asked an interview question, like name as many uses as you can for a brick. Um, that's a perfect example of divergent thinking because normally they ask you that question and it kind of sounds kind of obvious, but then you have two minutes to make, to name as many ideas as you can. And you start off by kind of saying, you know, we could build a house or you could build a wall um, or you could use it as a paperweight on your desk or you could prop a door open with it. And then after about 30 seconds, you've exhausted all of the obvious ideas that you can think of. And it, you know, it can start getting to a kind of weird and dark place in terms of, you know, what could you actually do with a brick? Um, and then you're kind of a minute in and then it kind of, gets worse from there. Yeah. That's an example of divergent thinking. This is the same kind of principle that's used in the the crazy eights idea where you come up with one possible solution and then another and then you keep on going. And when you get to ideas six, seven and eight, because you've exhausted the kind of more obvious ideas first, that's when you start to get to that divergent thinking towards the end. 
and that can be very um, that can be very effective as a as a technique that can work well. In- and is that then an exercise that you do uh, with with the, t- the the client team or uh, the, the customers itself, the customers of your client? So normally we would do that both internally within conversion.com and with our clients. I don't believe it's one that we've ever done with our clients' customers. Okay. We typically look to the customer to show us the problem, but not necessarily the, the solution. Although there's, yeah, yeah it's certainly been an interesting idea to, to try it. So that's the divergent uh, thinking. And the, the third one you mentioned in your blog post uh, for creating disruptive ideas is uh, 2x instead of 2%. Yes, yeah, so this is... um. This is kind of what we were talking about a little bit earlier in that often when when you're looking to optimize a page, and I'm certainly guilty of this myself, my tendency is to look at the page and then to think, how could we make that a little bit better? And so from the very start, you're thinking about, you know, how can we get this kind of marginal yeah. improvement in performance as opposed to starting with a more... Uh, radical question and then and then you get to experiments changing changing button colors. yeah exactly <laughs> um whereas instead you should be asking the question essentially how could we make how could we double the conversion rates yeah. if you could only run tests that would either double the conversion rates or more or nothing then what would you what would you test what would you do differently in your testing program i think it's quite an interesting um thought process to to go through because it completely changes what you're doing you're not going to kind of stick to the kind of standard concepts and ideas that you might have tested previously you're going to test something much more radical yeah the example that i used in the blog post is one from a, a company called i think posterous or posterous i'm not sure how you pronounce it i don't think the company even exists anymore actually which is maybe not the best endorsement of this way of thinking <laughs> um but essentially they the, well they would have ex- they would have gone away much exactly sooner if they, they hadn't done this one yeah. weird trick <laughs> but what they did really well is um and do do take a look at the screenshot in the in the blog post because it's going to explain it way better than I ever could. But essentially, they were like um, kind of similar to like a micro blogging platform, kind of crossed with Dropbox, I think that sort of thing. But basically, the way that they um, they improve their registration process, you know, normally you might think, okay, how do you re- improve your registration process? You could reduce the number of fields. You could tell people why you're asking for the information that you're asking for. You could sell people again on what they're signing up for. So it's not just a functional form. You've also got that motivational content alongside it. You could do all these sorts of things. But what they did is they said, well, actually, just let's skip the registration process altogether. They literally kind of say step one, register, and they cross it out. Um, Because if you want to host um, content on their platform, all you have to do is email the content to um, a given email address and it automatically creates an account for you based on your email address and that's it yeah that's a, a great example of that kind of 2x thinking you know rather than how could we increase the performance of our registration form by two percent yeah just remove the registration exactly form. and i love that kind of example i mean it, it's the kind of thing that you know you it makes you kick yourself for thinking like it's such a good idea how could i miss that but then if you do that enough times and Slowly but surely, you start to come up with those those sorts of ideas yourself as well. Yeah, exactly. Instead of just having a web shop uh, selling flowers, just send us an email for who you want to send the flowers to, for what location, and we'll and we'll yeah. handle it. Period. Yeah, fair <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who who needs a web shop? Thank you so much uh, for going um, uh, going through the blog post uh, with us. I think it's really interesting to get us out of our out of our daily 
daily grids yeah. and, 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 and trying to think of, of more uh, extreme examples that we can do to actually help our businesses way, way more than we, uh, than we currently do. Um, so you're obviously already working on evangelizing this um, uh, and, and trying to get more companies to do this. So in the next 12 months, what are you doing to help your companies to adopt this even more? So we're trying to support the clients that we work with to understand the opportunities to, to run these high-risk experiments. Ultimately, it's not on us to to push them or force their hand, but essentially to show them this is how you... This is why you should consider it, and these are the benefits that you could get. You need to persuade them. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, it's, you know, they are they are the clients. It's it's our job to advise them in the best way possible, but it's on them to decide yeah. what they actually want to do. Um, so that means that we have to work hard to essentially show the value in running those sorts of experiments, being prepared to test those those kind of ideas, um, especially if if you then do it and it doesn't work. Just because you're running those kind of concepts, it obviously doesn't mean that it's going to work first time or second time or third time. Um, but it's it's on us to to build the business case for that, to, to show them the potential upside and then show them how to do it. Basically, how to make it easy, I think. Because often people think, like, like you said at the um, at the start, you know, people think that they might have to you know, restructure the whole team if they're going to test X. It's on us yeah. to say... This is how we take this kind of big strategic goal that you have. This is an experiment that we think would inform it. And this is how we can do it in a really simple and easy to test way. That's that's what, what we need to, to do to show them how to make this kind of experimentation accessible. Have you already um, have a database of, of enough of those disruptive high-risk ideas that you can say, okay, this, this is roughly... Uh, the, the the success rate that you can expect from high risk rates, uh, high risk experiments versus low risk or medium risk, or so we do we do have a database of all the experiments that we've run, um, categorized in Airtable. One thing that we haven't done is categorize them according to risk. Uh, the challenge is that um, talking about risk is is only a relatively recent thing for for us in this in this kind of context. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. and it's, yeah. it's hard to attribute risk retrospectively i think <laughs> yeah. so it, it's more something that we're trying to build up over time from now and would you say that a high risk um, experiment by definition also takes much more effort and time no not necessarily or not necessarily no i mean i think a, a high risk experiment could be could be very simple you know if you wanted to completely change your value proposition or your price or something like it doesn't have to be a, a complex experiment to set up. I think that, that's part of the problem is people think that the higher risk stuff is, you know, it's completely redesign our, our, our shopping cart, for example. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be that. A, a high risk is, is doesn't need to be correlated to, to the complexity of the experiment. Nice. Should, should be easy to do, relatively yeah, easy to 100%. do. So uh, let's, let's all start, uh, start looking at our risk profiles and see if we can... Uh, squeeze in a bit more of those high exactly. risk points. Easy to do, hard to sign off, I think is probably the balance <laughs> that you're looking for. Steve, a final question. Uh, do you have any zero-related uh, books or or other resources that you'd like to uh, to mention and tip to our audience? I don't know. A lot of the books I'm, that I've been reading recently are not zero-related. Um, or or more general uh, books that, that inspire you or help you with your work. The one that I'm reading or rather listening to um, when I go running at the moment is... Um, uh, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, yep. um, which I think like you're almost embarrassed to say the name. It's, it's um, <laughs> I'm not sure I like the name of the book. It makes you, it's a bit over the top. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's really interesting. It kind of talks about and kind of 
typical Tim Ferriss style. It talks about, um, uh, I think, health, wealth, and wisdom are the three kind of sections of the book. And it's essentially um, summaries of the interviews that he's done um, on his um, Tim Ferriss show over the last five, six years, however long it is. And it's really interesting in terms of kind of getting a kind of good insight into what other people are doing what they're thinking how they work that sort of thing and it's um it's so eclectic you know i can go for a run and then in a couple of hours we'll have heard from seven or eight different people and um and their beliefs and so i always come back from my runs with a kind of mental list of five or six things to, to follow up on and, and learn more about so so is this is this one is it an actual uh book that he wrote or is it just a, a combination uh, of all the podcasts that he did. Yeah, this one's just the, the, the podcast okay, yeah. kind of summaries. So he talks about, you know, interviews with Schwarzenegger and um, Peter Diamandis and dot, 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 dot. you know, you could be listening to someone who's a business expert and then the uh, another one from the, the Russian guy who popularized kettlebells and, and how he trains with them. And a lot of it is on the kind of attitude and habit and so on. So yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty interesting for me. Nice. Thank you so much. We'll uh, we'll share that one in uh, in the show notes uh, too. Cool. And of course, if you want to read uh, more about this uh, topic, and uh, probably you you might want to have some uh, some visuals to <laughs> to support uh, the story, go to the go to Stephen's uh, blog post on conversion dot com. Uh, you'll find uh, a lot of um, a lot of extra in additional information uh, there. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Bye bye. And this concludes Season 2, Episode 37 of the Zero Cafe Podcast with Steven Pavlovich from Conversion.com. Next week, another English episode in which Elisa Mill will take us through the top six soft skills you need to rock in order to be great at zero. Talk to you then, and always be optimizing.